Lord, thank you for this space that you have given us on a Monday night. Thank you for uh, each one of these people that has set aside their time to um, invest in your word and invest in this community here. We pray that your spirit would be alive and active as we continue to study your word. Um, May our hearts be soft and may you open our ears to understand more about the truth of who your son is, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how we might live in a way that honors him even more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I imagine I'm not alone in appreciating the undo feature. I was writing a paper this last week and um, inadvertently deleted most of my paper, but fortunately was able to go back, command Z, command Z, command Z. (laughs) And so it wasn't as disastrous as it could have been. Uh, But I imagine that that has happened to you or something similar to that, that you, uh, before you delete that paper or hit cancel before you update your settings, um, maybe you've had a really good eraser when you've gone into that physics exam or uh, laundry soap that has been able to take out the stain out of your favorite shirt. Um, Those things are so amazing and helpful to us because I think we have all experienced the opposite. Uh, the text that can't be unsent, the gossip that can't be unsaid, the car accident that can't be undone, the money that can't be unspent, the images that you can't unsee, the decision or the lease that you sign that can't be reversed. Um, how, do we, how do we live under the weight of our mistakes, our guilt, our shame? Uh, we would like to be able to walk away from them and to undo, command Z, and have things go back to before, the way it was before. Uh, But your life probably has experienced this. I certainly have. Uh, We can't. We have to learn how, uh, we have to to deal with that. Uh, I read the Bible to say that God didn't create us to bear that weight. The weight of sin, the weight of failure, the weight of shame and the guilt. Um, and the Bible doesn't downplay any of that chaos. Uh, <clears throat> but since Genesis 3, since human rebellion in um, the garden with our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve, God has been working toward restoration. And he, this big problem that we have, human rebellion, bro- death, brokenness, has needed uh, in a God-sized problem. It's something we can't uh, fix ourselves, and uh, Jesus is making the way for us to be restored, that we might be able to live as God intended, without guilt, without shame, and to be right with God, our Creator. And so I think as we study tonight, we can continue to learn that restoration and forgiveness are only found in Jesus Christ. He is the promised king who comes, who has come to righteously rule God's kingdom. And we can see in our chapters this week, or I guess we're finishing chapter 26 and getting into chapter 27 of Matthew, we will see Jesus prove steadfast, in control. He knows what he's doing. He's mysterious, and sometimes we don't understand, and sometimes when we're close to the narrative, we don't understand exactly what's going on, Um, but 
And sometimes his good and victorious plans can look very dire. Uh, And it can seem by all appearances that evil is triumphing. But God is still in control and we should trust him. And when you and I falter, when you and I uh, have sin and shame and failure, uh, God invites us in Christ to look to him Jesus, his son, is steadfastly, even now, still doing God's will, of sitting at the right hand of God, the Father. Your eyes, my eyes, may drift from him, but his eyes never drift from us. Um, And so uh, I think we can learn that uh, King Jesus steadfastly is restoring this broken world. In fact, that's exactly what he has been doing on along. You and I should look to him trust that he's doing it and trust that he alone is offers the way to life and forgiveness of sin. So as we get into our, our uh, lesson tonight, we're going to look at two divisions. Um, the first is we're going to see Jesus, King Jesus, steadfastly drinking the cup his father set before him. We left off in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying for that. He was praying about that. Uh, you remember that he was praying, if this cup can be taken away, Please would it do that, but not my will, but your will be done. And so he submits to the Father's will. So we're going to pick that up. We cut off last week, kind of mid-sentence almost, uh, right as it was happening, the the height of the story. So it's sort of weird, but we're going to pick up. uh, We'll see Jesus submitting to arrest uh, in 26, 47 to 56. And then our second division, a longer one, will be Jesus persevering under his trials 2657 to 2731. And then our next lesson, which will actually be in two weeks because we're going to be on Easter break, we will see Jesus enduring crucifixion, death, and burial. And all that together is part of the cup that his father has set before him. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, just to help us as we go into it, open your Bibles, turn them on. If you haven't done that already, we're going to look at Uh, As we're going in here to the end of Matthew, let's take a brief little peek at the beginning of Matthew and hold on to three things. So open up to Matthew 1 and 2. If I can get there, that would be helpful. And there's a union of three things. Matthew 1 and 2 has set three expectations for us. Uh, one in Matthew 1 1, Jesus is the son and heir of King David. He is a royal heir, King David and of Abraham. So the inheritor of all those promises from the Old Testament. We're tying into, Matthew is reminding us from the very beginning, we're tying into that story. But Jesus is the son and heir. He's a kingly heir. We see in 121, uh, an angelic. Uh, voice, trustworthy in the narrative, an angel of the Lord told uh, Joseph that Jesus would save his people from their sins. So he's a kingly Davidic heir to save his people from his sins. And the third part of this is that um, in uh, the interpretation, the fulfillment prophecy, verse 23, uh, they will call him Emmanuel, meaning in, in the context suggested rightly, which means God with us. So hold on to all those three things, the union of that kingship, 
saving us from our sins and God with us. And um, kind of the height of that we already saw uh, Peter express in 1616 the uh, on the Caesarea Philippi declaring, you know, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so those are the, the, remember the identity that Matthew has set before us. Who is Jesus? Let's hold on to that as we go into these, uh, these passages because his identity is under attack and trial. And so let's uh, jump in then to our first division. Jesus steadfastly submits to his arrest, uh, 26, 47 to 56. And so, like I said, we broke off. Uh, we, we were um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was praying. The disciples were sleeping. We'll pick up in verse 45. And then he, Jesus, returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And so uh, Jesus awakened his disciples. Why? He could have just let them sleep, right? But there must've been something where he needed them to see this with their eyes. And even Matthew is likely reporting this as an eyewitness account. He was there. And so this, in this division, as we're going into it, we'll see three things. Uh, there's the betrayal, there's Jesus' correction of his disciple, and we'll see Jesus' indictment of the crowd. So in verse 47 to 50, we, he is betrayed, and Matthew emphasizes how this betrayal was personal. Judas was described as one of the 12. He doesn't think we're idiots, but he wants us to remember, like to see how personal and horrible this was. Judas was one of those who had been going around with Jesus, had seen him perform miracles, heard him teach, and yet he still betrayed. And uh, the Greek words, the prearranged sign that they had of affection, and actually when Judas came and kissed him, that Greek word, it emphasizes the intensity at the end of, uh, let's see here, 49, kissed him repeatedly, kissed him emphatically. It was very affectionate. Uh, And of course, that's not, we might want to sexualize that in our culture, but that was a common cultural way at that time that companions and men, friends would greet each other. And even still, if we go into other cultures, that is a common way for people to greet each other. And then he outwardly showed him respect, uh, calling him rabbi, which means teacher. Um, Jesus wasn't taken unaware. Of course, he knew that was going to happen, but it didn't mean the betrayal didn't hurt. And so Jesus acknowledges uh, Judas in verse 50. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, this large crowd that had come with Judas, clubs, and seized Jesus and arrested him. And uh, so that's the first part, Jesus' betrayal. And then we see then the next uh, where Judas hurt with affection. Here we see another disciple unnamed in this account trying to love Jesus, but with violence. And so um, perhaps with good motives, the disciple was uncooperative. Uh, 51, with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. I'm sure you guys had fun talking about that, what was going on. Um, was he trying to cut off the ear or go the head? Or I'm not sure. Um, 
But although in crisis, we see Jesus continue to invest and correct uh, his disciples and reading verse 52, put your sword back in its place. So stop it. Basically, that, that's number one. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call in my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And so Jesus says those three things, stop it. Number two, um, this is not the path I'm on. All those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Implication is if you, those who follow Jesus, you and I aren't on that path either because he was to die on the cross and he calls those who follow him to take up our crosses and uh, unto self-mortification of false loves and behaviors. And of course, our sacrifice as Christ followers is never salvific. We can't save ourselves or others by that. Um, But it is that we are being united with Jesus. We're following Jesus. And then so when Jesus poses that question, um, you know, do you not know that I could call on my father and have the legions of angels is to say, do you think I am here because I have been overpowered? He has not been overpowered. He is steadfastly drinking the cup that the father has placed in front of him. Um, and so asking his father for an angelic intervention and defense would be rejecting that cup. And Jesus is steadfast and cooperative of his father's will. And so uh, the, then when he says, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? He's really saying God is in control and pointing his disciples to the fact that God has been revealing his plan of redemption throughout scripture and having being recorded for God's people. And so um, Jesus speaks broadly, but it prompts his disciples and us to consider what the whole of God's scriptures are driving toward. Why is this a key part? And how is Jesus at the very heart of God's plan? Okay, and so then Jesus, for this third part of this division in verse 55, he then turns to the crowd and says, at this time, at that time, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you do not arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And so as Jesus is addressing the crowds, we've seen him do this throughout the gospel of Matthew, that uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, verses uh, chapter five, verse one, he's been addressing the crowds and most recently in 23, one, while the crowds are not made up of the same people, I suggest to you within the narrative, they, they are within the same type of character. And so they seem to represent a similar identity. It's a large group of people who are curious about Jesus, but changeable and not steadfast. They're opening to listening, opening to receiving blessing from Jesus, uh, like bread and healing and uh, even interesting teaching, but they're not willing evidently to, or able to commit to him like the disciples were. And so here in this juxtaposed surely is uh, chapter 21, 
the crowds that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem just days later now have come armed against him. And again, not not that the point is that they're the same people, but it's the same type of character uh, or group, character group, if that makes sense. And so, and we see the, the last, this is uh, the last voice of the crowd in Matthew's narrative is against him. We will see that in chapter 27, 2024, when they cry out, crucify him to Pilate, let his blood be upon us, me, us and our children. And so that's sort of the implication of, of that. Um, and so, we know that uh, Jesus was not a was not a rebel or a robber. Um, then again, the implication is: Can swords and clubs overpower Jesus? Uh, no. While indeed Jesus came inaugurating God's kingdom, um, and so He was striking a death toll on the flawed human systems of power and oppression. He did not come to harm, but rather to redeem and Jesus' methods of sitting and teaching didn't warrant this armed force that they were bringing. He was innocent. Um, and we can, like we've seen before in the narrative, uh, 2146 and 26, four to five, the human reason that the religious leaders who were seemed to be behind this crowd did not touch Jesus there is because they were afraid of the crowds. They were afraid of the people rioting. Um, but Jesus points to a larger reason saying, but this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. His life was submitted to the divine timetable and Jesus understood that and was willing. And so um, as just as Jesus had said in 2631, when he had quoted, quoted the prophet Zechariah, that the uh, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So it happened. When Jesus, the good shepherd was arrested, his disciples fled. And then, um, yeah, when Jesus, Jesus had come to us and he is God with us, he alone is able to stand because we all in the disciples representative uh, fled. So a principle, I think what we can learn from this division is what Jesus says happens. What Jesus says happens. We're gonna continue to see this unfold. Uh, Jesus has been predicting these, these exact things that were happening to him, um, and it carries implications about who Jesus is. And remember in 17.5, at the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the Father's voice said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so if Jesus, what Jesus says happens, there's implications that Jesus is trustworthy. And if Jesus has trustworthy words, you and I are challenged to build our lives on them. Like Jesus illustrated for us in Matthew 7, 24 to 25. Um, So hearing Jesus comes responsibility. Uh, We, how are you doing with that? Like, Jesus' words, are you building your life on them? What would that look like for you to build your life on Jesus' trustworthy words? And you might think as this division certainly uncovers in God's kingdom, sometimes winning feels or looks like losing. In this division, who won? Who won? Appearances deceived. Jesus is arrested, but he accomplished for the Father's will. Will you pray for eyes to see 
victory, what it looks like to build your life on Jesus' trustworthy words and trust that that is victorious even when it leads you to places where you might not get that promotion. You might not be praised by uh, people in your family. Your parents might not recognize the accomplishments that you do. Um, In God's kingdom, sometimes winning feels or looks like losing. Um, Okay, let's go on to our next division then. Um, Jesus steadfastly endures his his trials. And uh, again, the key thing we'll see is that Jesus is steadfast. um, And this is a long masterfully, or longer masterfully structured division. Uh, Matthew, I put together a little mini outline over there so you can see it, or one way that I've... um, Uh, outlined it. Matthew is telling this true story, but in such a way for us to be able to see and make comparisons and contrasts. And um, so Jesus, when we get lost in this division, if that happens to you, like, what is going on? Um, Go back to Matthew 20, verse 19. Um, Jesus summarized for us what would happen. And actually this whole section, but Um, he's predicting his death in verse 18. I'll just read that. We are going up to Jerusalem. Okay, we saw that. And the son of man will be betrayed betrayed to the chief priests and the teacher of the law. We saw that. Uh, They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked mocked, mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So we're in the middle of this where Jesus, what Jesus said is proving trustworthy, is happening. Um, but that is, that's ba- the basic factual outline of what's going to happen. So we have uh, two trials, Jesus' Jewish trial, which is verses 57 to 66, and then Jesus' Roman trial, uh, 27, 11 to 26. And in each of those trials, there, there's one pointed question that Jesus answers, and it's about his identity, his kingly identity. And then all the other allegations that are made against him, he remains silent. So we see the same pattern in each of those trials. Each of the trials have physical abuse scenes that happen after them. And then between those two trials, we get an interlude that focuses on the two disciples, Peter and Judas. And so the overarching question or theme of this division is that is Jesus, is, is Jesus God's promised Christ and King? And so that is being tested. Uh, what are the implications for groups and for individuals um, if, if indeed that is true? So again, um, what does it say about human hearts in how these representatives respond to God's king? And Matthew is bringing all these different groups, representative groups, Jewish leaders, and then faithful disciples, unfaithful disciple, the, again, the religious leaders, then we'll see Gentiles, like the, the leadership, and also uh, just Gentiles generally represented in the soldiers. Okay, so um, the who in this, we'll try to <laughs> go through this uh, division uh, quickly, but think about like who who is here in the first uh, Jewish trial, and starting in verse 57, we see this is the Jewish religious leaders. These are a people 
uh, whose God-given purpose was to care for God's people on his behalf, to arbitrate justly, intercede with for them, teach the ways and the character of God, and train them to trust in God. And so the goal of this uh, this trial, however, as you get into it, uh, verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, that was uh, one way that you could describe the local body or the, the body of Jewish elders. I think there were 70 of them. Um, it was probably not all of them, but maybe a, a hastily gathered quorum. They were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Um, <clears throat> and so the that is a, a trial with a desired verdict. It's hardly, it's hardly going to be impartial. Um, however, we do, there, there is a tension here because these leaders are trying Jesus against the standard of God's law. And though they do not, God's law, as it was given, has capital crimes, these Jewish leaders didn't have authority. So, to execute anyone, even though they were, they were looking for him uh, to be put to death, they can't put him to death. Their hands are tied because they're an occupied country. And so the Romans uh, allowed local bodies like the Sanhedrin uh, some role in governance, but Rome controlled capital punishment. So this was not a trial with any real uh, civil authority, that makes sense. Uh, they could not put Jesus to, to death. But in their minds, it seems like they're trying to go by the book. And um, the Jewish trial presented in two parts. Um, first, they're hearing testimony against Jesus, verses 60 through 61. And you get the sense that there's some floundering. Um, they, they couldn't find any. They're looking for false evidence against Jesus. They could put him to death, but they couldn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So uh, they, again, they were looking for, probably in Jewish law, you had to have, especially for a capital crime, two or three uh, people agreeing that uh, the charges were true, but um, they, they do seem to, what is this, what is this, it is a serious allegation about the temple. Matthew hasn't presented to us this. John does record Jesus saying something like that, and so it could be that these people were misquoting uh, something that Jesus said, but he, Jesus ha- said, Matthew did record to us in Matthew twelve six that one greater than the temple is here. And so if they recognize who Jesus is, those words must be seen in that context. Uh, he did predict the destruction of the temple in 24, one to two. Um, so in this section, Jesus remains silent. And we can see that in, in 63, even though the high priest uh, badgered him against that. Um, but Jesus is not trying to protest his innocence. He's not trying to explain himself. Uh, remember how Jesus, we just saw in chapters 21 and 22, he's not someone who could be outfoxed or out or trapped in his own words. And so this suggests that this is not Jesus being befuddled, but rather an intentional fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Isaiah 53, 7 
which reads, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is not trying to escape. And as such, he's not really the only one on trial. The Jewish leaders and all these groups in Jesus' trial are uh, revealing what their hearts are. And so in the second part, we see of this trial, Jesus uh, is charged by the high priest in 63. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And uh, Jesus does seem to respond to the chief priest in this God-appointed role. And he is a two-part answer. Uh, verse 64, my NIV translators translate it, yes, it is as you say, uh, Jesus replied. In the Greek, it's two words. It's just two words. You said or you have said, uh, which is uh, one commentator I read suggests that this is a qualified affirmative. So Jesus is putting the responsibility back on the questioner and uh, maybe indicating that what the question is saying is correct, but not quite phrased properly or the connotations are not uh, right. So it could have, the con- could have the force of yes, but I don't mean by that what you mean. Um, and we're going to see this is the same phrase that uh, Judas, that Jesus gave to Judas's question in twenty six twenty five. Is it I, Lord? And then this will be the same phrase when he responds to Pilate's question in twenty seven eleven. Um, and so this, but just in case it was ambiguous, Jesus goes on and makes it abundantly clear what he is who he is claiming to be. Jesus replied, but I say to you all in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so he's bringing together these two Old Testament passages in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, and in Psalm 110, 1. And those are unique Old Testament passages where God seems to share his heavenly authority with someone also enthroned as a co-regent. And so um, that is that is <laughs> unmistakable. Jesus is claiming to have a unique relationship with God. Not only is he Christ, but he has this unique relationship uh, with, the, with God. And so um, the that was all the high priest was looking for. Um, and he, Jesus, in his opinion, it's like, oh, wow, this is like Christmas, come early, or um, Passover, come early. No, I'm just kidding. Um, 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard it, the blasphemy. What do you think? And so they pronounce the people there, he is worthy of death, they answered. And then they go into where they physically abuse him and mock him um, <clears throat> as uh, God's prophet. Um, and so that seems to fulfill Isaiah 50 verses five through nine. I encourage you to, uh, to look those verses up. Um, okay, so then we, that was the Jewish trial. We went into that a little bit longer than I wanted to. But, um, we'll get into Peter's failure, uh, which comes next. Um, and so while Jesus' trial was going on out, outside or inside, Peter was in the courtyard and he had an interrogation too. And so three times he was asked if he was with Jesus. 
And three times he lied in denying it. And so rather than the most prestigious uh, religious leader in the land interrogating him, he had like slave girls and other people who would be standing around a fire uh, with a bunch of other slave, you know, like servants and slave girls. So pretty low stakes. Um, And yet uh, Peter, for whatever reason, we do not, Matthew doesn't relate to us what he was thinking or why. Um, He vehemently, like verse 74, began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And so, um, again, why? Matthew doesn't name it. um, But what Jesus said happened this is what Jesus predicted, and it did happen. Um, it was not what Peter had wanted to happen. Um, and perhaps Peter felt the gap between what he had wanted to do and what he proved in his weakness he was uh, incapable of doing. And uh, he might have remembered Matthew, Jesus saying in Matthew ten thirty three, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him. Um, the hope is for Peter is in two parts. And uh, the first part is what Jesus had already declared, that uh, while Jesus' word proves sadly true in Peter's denial, how graciously kind then is his implied promise that what he says, but after I have risen in 2632, I will go ahead of you in Galilee. And we're going to see that in 2816, uh, all 11 of the disciples. So Peter is back restored. He's with them. Um, Jesus was not done with Peter. And we also see in a bigger way um, that where Jesus stood steadfast under interrogation, um, you and I are no better than Peter. In fact, he's in many ways probably better than a lot of us, like better than me, for sure, in stronger in faith and willing to follow Jesus uh, with more um, self-sacrifice and tenacity. Um, But Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. In that, he didn't run away with Peter, but he stood. He interposed himself in between what the standard was and our, what are we in our weakness, um, is what what we cannot do. And so in Peter, I think we can also see all those who've trusted Jesus and followed him. Our faith in itself is faltering and we're likely more fragile than we think. Um, and we too should grieve for how we have denied Jesus uh, in our workplaces, in our families, um, how we think about the world, how we drive. Uh, we should also grieve for our, our capacity to deny Jesus, but we should rejoice that Jesus, whose grace restored Peter and spoke of that restoration even before Peter faltered, that he restores us too. He is God with us. Um, Jesus is not faltering and fragile like us, but he is steadfast. He stands firm. Um, when uh, when it have has it that you have not denied Jesus? When have you stood strong? Um, maybe in a situation where it was there was high stakes and you were faithful to represent to be faithful to your Christ or faithful to Christ your Savior. That is evidence of Him working in you, of His Spirit 
growing you and restoring you, evidence of his power, and that the sins that you have, the failures that you have in your life do not characterize you now, that you are in Christ, a new creation, and you belong to him. And so um, going on, then Matthew brings us back uh, in with two verses just to remind us what's been going on. Um, I read this as a summary. There's discussion, is this another trial? But um, I'm seeing this more as a summary. Uh, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders, 21 verses 1 and 2, came to the decision to put Jesus to death, and they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Why? Again, because they wanted him to be put to death, but they didn't have authority to do that, right? Um, And so then we see... Uh, Matthew brings us into this section, this very sad section with Judas uh, in verses three through five and going on, I guess, through verse 10. Um, In parallel with Peter, Judas has remorse um, and he saw that Jesus was condemned um, and he changed his mind. And so verse three and four, um, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. I have betrayed innocent blood. That is the right thing for him to do, by the way. God's Mosaic law provided that when God's people, unholy people sinned, the way they should deal with that sin was to go to the priests and make a confession like Leviticus 5. And the priest would then administer a sacrifice to atone for that sin, that the person could be forgiven. So Judas wasn't wrong in that he went to those chief priests. But look at, there, there, there is a critically wrong and horribly sad thing um, that we'll get to, but what is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility, what are they talking about? That is their responsibility. What a com- like even after their you know the gavel has fallen on uh, Matthew twenty three when Jesus declared like you are guilty of not doing like the woes you have not been good shepherds. Here we have another example of um, their their total failure. They're unable and unwilling to mediate for sinful people on God's behalf. Um, That was their job. If there's any more proof needed that they were unqualified for the role that they played, there it is. And then, but the second thing is now, that is the tragedy for Judas because he had nowhere else to go. These priests refused to help him, but further and probably more importantly, Judas had rejected the true priest, capital P, that Jesus, that the priests and the whole Old Testament sacrificial system were to point. And we can look at Hebrews 10, 12. Um, Blood of goats cannot take away sins, but when this priest, meaning Jesus, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so Judas had nowhere to go. He had rejected the one true priest, capital P. And he could have, uh, theoretically, perhaps, he could have still turned to Jesus and gotten repentance, but that is tragically not what he did. And I think that shows the result of the life 
And we can see this around us in our culture of people living without hope of forgiveness. Where do you find hope when there is none? That how do you get rid of the horrible things that you've done in your life? The things that you've done to other people, the things that have been done to you, the shame of that. What do we do with that? We're living in a culture where there's no forgiveness. If you say the wrong thing, if you tweet the wrong thing, if you stand with the wrong people, you are canceled. There's no forgiveness. Jesus holds out hope. That is the life of no forgiveness is not what God intends for us. And he holds it out, but we have to be able to, we also have to receive it. Um, Okay, moving on. How are we doing? Oh my gosh. Okay, let's, let's wrap it up. Okay, so we see in the Roman trial, um, again, Jesus's kingship is on trial. That's the question. Um, 11, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, And then we have the same response in Greek, the two words here by NIV has not wrongly translated it, but it says, yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. And so um, there's nothing, uh, it comes like Jesus Jesus doesn't give Pilate anything to go on. Um, There were lots of conquered puppet kings in the Roman empire. And so it was not a big deal that there was somebody who was a king. It was just that perhaps maybe in this particular province, remember King Herod used to be a king? Well, Judea was a very troubled place and Rome stepped in and said, all right, you guys aren't gonna have a king. We're gonna set up direct Roman rule. And so maybe that's what the religious leaders were trying to do is suggest that this was treasonous, that by this guy setting up himself as king, that people were gonna follow him and they were gonna rebel against Rome. Um, And of course, Judea continued to do those sorts of things. Um, And perhaps Pilate expected a bribe. Um, Jesus didn't give him any room for that. Um, uh, But he had to, even though he tried to avoid crucifying Jesus, he caved to public pressure. Um, And he probably saw to, I mean, in all honest, I mean, to give him the benefit of the doubt, Pilate probably didn't think judging justly over like provincial uh, issues was really something that was his job description. It was more just, can we keep the peace for Rome's interests? And that's what his, that's probably what he thought to himself. But it asks the question, can we declare ourselves innocent just by saying it? And Matthew's narrative suggests no, that Pilate had the opportunity to stand for right, and he caved. Half-hearted efforts to do the right thing rarely do the right thing. Um, Declaring yourself innocent does not make you innocent. Um, And I think uh, Pilate's life ends up being very sad. We know that from other uh, historical sources. And then we go on. So he was, the decision was to crucify Jesus and have him flogged um, rather than you know, he tried to get out of it. And then there's a coronation scene. Um, it's a mocking scene, but it is, Jesus' kingship is on trial this whole time. He's claiming to be Christ, which is not Jesus' last name, but king, the anointed one, um, the promised one. And so uh, they have this coronation scene. So a principle I think that we can learn from this is that even when we falter, Jesus proves true. 
Even when we falter, Jesus proves true. Jesus' words will prove faithful, every single one. Jesus' character will prove faithful. He's never out of control. He's never faltering. He's always steadfast. Jesus' work will prove faithful. How he acts in history will be consistent to his faithful character and God's redemptive plan. He is the one who rescues and saves. He can't stop doing that. That's his character. Um, He cannot stop being faithful, truthful, steadfast, obedient, and he won't stop. Um, Sometimes you might, and in this Easter season, you might get a, a, a chocolate bunny, but realize disappointingly, it is just hollow. It's this ginormous bunny, and you bite into it, and it all caves apart because you're like, oh man, that's so disappointing as a kid. Um, Jesus is not like that, where the inside doesn't match the outside. Um, Jesus has given us sufficient evidence that he will always prove true. He will always be 100% consistent on the inside to what he has claimed about himself, that he is loving and wise and faithful and merciful and just, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And every single moment in history will, will prove Jesus to be true. Uh, is that what you expect from him? What do you expect from Jesus in your life right now? How he is, who he is, and how have you experienced the reality of his character in the past? And even when you fail, you succumb to that same horrible sin one more time. He will still prove faithful. He will still prove merciful and gracious. And sometimes you may wonder in dark moments where Jesus is. Does he hear your prayers? Has he forgotten you? Um, Even in those moments, Jesus is true. Will you cry out to him and ask ask him to help you wait for him? The nighttime will not last forever. Does that comfort you? Jesus' arrest and trial was perhaps the darkest period or Uh, of human history leading up to his death on the cross. And yet it was Jesus, well, arguably, I don't know, there are a lot of great moments, but it was Jesus' great moment. Um, Through the cross, he accomplished the mission of fully disclosing the Father to us and fully carrying out his Father's plan of of redemption. Is it not comforting to know that even what appears to be in chaos, Jesus was firmly and demonstrably in control of all things. Our lives are restored, renewed. We are forgiven. We have hope. We can live without guilt and shame only in King Jesus, God's steadfast son. What comfort does that give you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you that you proved faithful that you sent him, that we might be restored to you. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to uh, reveal him to us and help us, by your grace, to reveal him to a lost and hurting world. We pray in his name. Amen.